If you brought your copy of God's Word with you this morning, let me invite you to open Matthew chapter 13. We're going to continue our study of the parables here in chapter 13. And over the past couple of weeks, we looked at the parable of the sower and the soils, and we saw there how to distinguish Jesus was making an obvious distinction there, how to distinguish between true disciples of Jesus, uh, those good soil on whom the preaching of the gospel uh, had changed for, and I'm going to use the word for, the permanent. The good soil on whom the preaching of the gospel changed for the permanent. Whose Christian lives were distinguishable from non-believers, not simply by the word of their confession, though that is probably true in most instances, but instead and conclusively by their lives, by the fact that their lives, as we saw in that parable, their lives yielded a harvest. That was one of the distinguishing elements of those 100, some fold, 60, and 30. Their lives, that seed planted in good soil, yielded a harvest. We saw that in verse 23, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And we saw how Jesus didn't go um, into just some lengthy explanation of what bearing fruit even meant. He just indicates good soil, uh, yielding a crop, some hundredfold, sixty, some thirty. And he doesn't get into an explanation of what bearing good fruit meant or what bearing good fruit would look like in your lives in this context. And perhaps, I was thinking, why would he have done that? And it seems perhaps, at least a logical reason would be, he didn't do that because there would be individuals who would read that list and then try to mimic that through their activities, through their lives, and make that become some kind of a spiritual or religious activity, and thus could know for certain that they were what? Good soil. Because I, I did exactly... Jesus gave me a list, I did the list, check the box, I did the list. And I think that's perhaps one of the reasons he didn't do that. You see, there are going to be those who are the good soil, who truly understand the gospel, who repent and believe. Uh, they come out from that having changed desires by means of the Holy Spirit who now dwells within them and who now is at work in them. They will bear good fruit naturally, you might say, from a new nature that was given from above, and thus they will yield a harvest. Not all the same, not everybody's going to do the same things or be as fruitful, some 30, 60, some 100 fold. Jesus made it very clear for his disciples, if the gospel seed planted does not yield a harvest, does not bear fruit, then as of yet, God has not granted that soil eyes to see, ears to hear, and they would still be in a category of being unbelievers, of not having come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I use this word very purposefully, yet. Yet. Think about your life. The very first time you heard the gospel, it was sown on you, 
the very first time, if you only had one chance at that first moment to respond to the sowing of that seed in your life, how many of us would be Christians today? I wouldn't be. I grew up, I got drugged to church for a multitude of years, eventually walked an aisle, did what my denomination told me to do. You know my story? But no, that's why it's important to realize that, that, that yes, not everyone gets saved on that first time. We continue to do what as sowers? Sowers go out, we saw last week, sowers go out and sow. We go out and sow. We plant and we water, right? Amen? That's what we do. But when we hear someone claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ with their words, yet you see no harvest, truly no harvest of bearing fruit for the kingdom and for the glory of God through their lives. How might that look? Well, just in the context of a relationship, you have a husband who does not seek to love his wife like Christ loves the church intentionally. Doesn't think about it, never comes across his mind, and he doesn't do it. A wife, she's not looking to be a submissive wife. She's not looking to live uh, with her husband in an, in an understanding way and submit to him as unto the Lord in all things. That's just one simple example of what fruit-bearing looks like when the Holy Spirit enlivens a person. It's, it's something that you don't have to really even think about. It's part of who you've become, a part of a new nature, and thus the importance of discipleship, thus the importance of being with people closely in discipleship because Jesus said when they get saved, when you go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you need to then teach them to observe all that Christ has taught. Then you, so you take them to the Word of God, and you say, this is how we then live. And you find within your heart desires that say, yes, I want to live that way, because when you were lost, I once was lost, right? Now I'm found. And so w when we were once lost, we didn't have holy desires to be pleasing to God, to live in a very unorthodox way in our culture in which we live. Follow me? And so we need to be mindful of the fact that if we're ministering to individuals who, on the one hand, tell us the thing but never show us the thing, yes, I'm in, but they never have the bearing of the fruit that's in keeping with repentance, I think it's very safe to say on the authority of scriptures, they, as Peter said, at least have need to give consideration of their true spiritual condition. Are you following me? At a minimum. And this is where this teaching in the Word of God becomes like a light for us. It's like a mirror, James says. We look into the mirror and we see ourselves. And what kind of person do we see? And we ought to see a person that's in need of change if we're not seeing the, the ongoing and gradual growing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I was thinking about this with regard to my own life. And I thought, how often do I actually uh, think about uh, my need and responsibility to bear good fruit in keeping with the teachings of Scripture? How often do I actually and actively think about that? And the only thing that really came to my mind was the word never. It's like I don't really ever have to make myself think about it. I just kind of realize it's kind of like who I am. It's just 
something that's naturally a part of me. It's like I can't not think about these kinds of things. And so then I started thinking about that in relationship to some of Jesus' teaching with regard to like good trees bear what kind of fruit? So the apple seed that gets planted becomes the, the apple tree. How diligently must that apple tree be thinking to himself, I really need to bear some apples? Never. It just does what it's going to do by nature. It's, it's got the nature of an apple tree. It bears apples. It happens naturally. It's what we do without even thinking about it. It's our mother tongue, if, if you will. Instead of thinking of those things, what I find myself thinking about is how can I discipline myself more godliness? How can I get myself more disciplined this year to have more consumption of God's word in my life this year, more prayer in my life this year than over the past years? How can I become more like my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this year? And not for any reasons of, of gaining heaven. I've already got that freely. But it's because, as we just sang, and I, I, when, we, when that song, the, the second to the last song we sang, I just mentioned the words, may he become the fire within my veins. Did you feel that when you sang those words? This is what we're talking about. He is the fire within our veins. It's not, it's not an appendage off our side. Christ is not just some appendage off our side. He is the fire within our veins. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. I can't not but desire to be pleasing to God. And when I don't, it grieves us deeply, doesn't it? We don't have to kind of think about whether it should be grieving me or not grieving me. When a wife isn't being submissive to her husband and she knows it, she ought to be grieved to her core deeply and weep bitterly over that if she's a true child of God. And a husband who fails to love his wife like Christ loves the church ought to grieve deeply over that if he's truly a child of God. He should feel that deeply because he has a new nature. Apple trees bear apples. God gave you a new nature to live. He's at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. With the Holy Spirit... And our new nature, it's natural, it's organic, it's intuitive, it's instinctive. We see this in passages in Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to what? To serve the living God. It's instinctive, it's organic. Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which he, he prepared, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. Why? Because it's natural, it's organic, it's intuitive, it's instinctive to who we are now as the people of God. In Acts 26, 20, but that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. We saw John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 8, therefore bear fruit in keeping with Repentance, and then again from James, we looked at last week, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. What do we do with our old self? You're putting it aside. When did you put it aside? At the moment and point of conversion. When you cried out to God to save you from your sin. Put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility. Receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves 
doers of the word and not merely hearers who have deluded themselves in thinking that they're in just by simply saying the thing but never living or doing the thing. So, as we saw last week, if affliction or persecution for your faith in Jesus causes you to fall away or if the deceitfulness of wealth keeps you from following Jesus, if it chokes the word in your life and the love of riches and the desire for more it keeps you from the word and from following the word, it pulls your life away from having a natural, organic, intuitive, yea, even an instinctive interest in the things of God and of his kingdom, then Jesus' teaching should be a warning shot across your bow, <clears throat> letting you know of a need for genuine repentance and should have you crying out to God for mercy and grace. John the Apostle put it like this. <clears throat> Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, this is what we as believers have to fight against day after day. That's why we put to death deeds of the flesh. That's why we continue to walk by the Spirit. That's why we continue to discipline ourselves for the purpose of Godliness. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. But don't forget the world's passing away and also all of its lusts. But the one who does the will of God the one who does what? The one who is a doer. He's a dozer of the will of God. Will be with God and lives forever. Jesus is showing his disciples the reason why most of the people to whom they have been preaching and teaching concerning the kingdom of heaven had little to no interest in their newly minted message about Jesus of Nazareth being their long-awaited Messiah Miracles and all, they were not interested yet. Move on to the next town. Keep being a sower who sows. They didn't accept it. Just dust off your feet and keep on moving and keep on preaching. Evangelize to the next person. Because coming up behind you, the person that you evangelized to last week, you never know. Uh, Matt Kerr may be coming up into his life the very next week. You've already moved on from him and on to the next person. He kind of gave you a, a, an all shucks but no thanks, and then Kerr shows up and the guy says, you know, I've been really thinking about that the past week. Can you give me more information? You just never know, right? Sowers, what do sowers do? Sowers sow. Sowers sow. And so we saw that last week. We need to be sowers because people need the Lord. Just because you run into an unbeliever out there today, maybe tomorrow, God causes the growth. Amen? So when we get to the passage that we're actually going to be preaching on today, <clears throat> um, <laughs> it always seems to happen this way. Don't you love the Word of God? It, it, he is fire in our veins, isn't He? I mean, you just can't. You just want to eat the word, live the word, let it shoot out your fingertips, 
and you get cut, Spurgeon says, you bleed Bible, right? That's why I've encouraged us all this year to have a plan, a purposed plan that, that's maintainable. Don't make it non-attainable, make it attainable. To get more of God's word into our life this year in 2024 than we did in the previous years. We need to consume more of God's word. It's what's going to be changing us but through the work of the Holy Spirit from the inside out with each passing week, month, year to the glory of God. So what I want to do this morning is a two-part on the next three parables uh, in, the, in chapter 13 where we have... The parable of the tares and the wheat, or the wheat and the tares, from verse 24 down through verse 30. Then we have the parable of the mustard seed in verse 31 to 32. And then we have uh, the parable of leaven uh, from verses 33 through 35. And then from 36 all the way down through verse 43, Jesus then leaves the place where he was in the boat teaching, and he goes back to his house, and the disciples had a question regarding his parable on the tares, and he wanted, they were seeking more explanation um, in that. And I've kind of thought about a, a way to um, categorize these three, the tares, the wheat, the mustard seed, and the leaven. And the way that I have uh, thought about that is that these seem to be, all be parables concerning the church age and beyond, kind of at a high level. The, the, not, not just so much the, the, the nitty-gritty intimate details, but at a high level, all three of these seem to be teaching us something concerning the church age, which is what we're living in right now, the church age, between the first advent of Christ, his coming as a babe in a manger, and his second advent when he's coming on a white steed with the sword in his mouth, Revelation, right? So in between that time, we, we refer to that as the time of the church age. And so during that time, the church age, these parables concern that and even beyond that. And so I want us to just kind of uh, work our way through these with that in mind, because these are some high um, shelf. We're looking down from a high view at these parables and getting an understanding that Jesus in particular, and I do believe this, he's, he's teaching to his disciples. Yes, he's teaching to the crowds, right? Why are you teaching them in parables? They can't understand anything you're saying. He says, I'm doing this for your benefit. What's already been given to them has been taken away. It's for your benefit. Remember the birds, they come, they snatch. It's already been taken away. Doesn't mean we don't keep sowing it, but it's been taken. But those who can see are going to even have more. This is for your benefit to his disciples who are going to be left on planet Earth doing gospel ministry when Jesus ascends back to the Father. And so here we are still today as disciples of Jesus Christ doing ministry, waiting for him to come again. He's back with the Father, and we're waiting for him to come. So this is information for them, but yes, also for us today as well. Let's look at the um, parable of the, the wheat and the tares. Notice verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Verse 28 and he said to them, an enemy has done this. 
the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for, for a while you are gathering up the tares, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we're not going to spend as much time in this. We're going to kind of just get through this quickly because he goes back and he explains this parable and in particular the significance with regard to the tares. And we're going to see that in this parable, though some of the same analogies are being used, there are different um, meanings within those analogies from what we saw in the parable last week. It's still an agrarian context of sowing and reaping and gathering. But here, uh, so again, as in that similar vein, we have Jesus using the figure of a farmer sowing in his field. But his emphasis here doesn't seem to be what happens to the good seed as in, in the first parable that we looked at over the last two weeks, but what is going to happen to the bad seed that the farmer's enemy then sowed alongside the good seed in his field. And in this parable, it seems very obvious that it's assumed here that the farmer sowed his seed in good fertile soil and that the seed took root. It grew into healthy and productive yielding grain and here identified in verse 25 as wheat. In verse 25, it's identified as wheat. Where am I missing it? Wheat, thank you, bottom left corner. But then notice, the, um, while the workers were asleep, Enemies sneak in onto the farmer's field, sows tares among the wheat, and then they sneak away unawares. And so then in verse 26, it says, But when that wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. So it's not until some time later that this devious deed, which had been done to the farmer while they were at sleep one night, uh, became a reality, became known. Because wheat stock and this the tares, the stalks, um, as we can tell within this context, they, were, they looked almost identical. There was no way to separate them or to distinguish between them until the, uh, the, the wheat yielded itself the harvest and it sprouted itself that wheat head on the top of, that, on top of the stalk, which the tares did not, and then you were able to identify which was which. So when this was discovered, the slaves of the landowner wanted to go and immediately take action to remove the tares from the field. But the landowner again said there in verse 29, No, let's not do it that way. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. So the landowner owner rightly knew that it would be best to allow them to continue to allow the two to grow up side by side until the right time. And we saw there in verse 30, that there's going to be a right time, and he referred to that as a time of harvest. Allow them both to grow together until the harvest. And so when this harvesting time comes, that's the time that you can go in that will have given all of the wheat uh, stalks the proper time to have sprouted their, their, their grain and be distinguishable so as to not go in and accidentally pull up one of the, the wheat that had not yet produced a head of grain. Give it time. 
but in the time of the harvest, it will all be made known. It will be revealed perfectly. Then the tares will be gathered for burning, and then the wheat gathered into the landowner's barn, and all will be well, right? So this parable, together with the first parable that we saw last week, it seems Jesus shows his disciples that during the church age, that time between the two advents of Christ, much is kind of going to stay the same. Much is going to be the same. Um, it's going to be a time when the world is filled with wheat and tares. It's going to be a time of this, this church age will be a time for worldwide evangelism, if you will. A time for sowing the seed of the gospel. A time when the sons of God and the children of the evil one will inhabit God's green earth alongside one another until the very end of the age. And then comes that great end gathering, that harvest time when the reapers will set everything right for their master. So that's a simple setting up of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the disciples were somewhat confused by what they had heard. And perhaps we might be a little bit as well. But whenever we get to the explanation that Jesus gives, when we just look at it simply and we think of it as wheat and tares and it's a, a, the, the, the evil neighbor up the road came in and his boys scattered the, ta the, the tares amongst the wheat because he didn't, their boys didn't like his boys and they got in a fight last week over the cow that got loose. That's our cow. No, it's my cow. And so they came in. They did this devious thing. It, you know, on a natural level, it all makes sense. But Jesus wasn't just talking about wheat and tares, he's talking about human souls. And so he's going to get into that when he gets to the explanation. So we're dealing with this parable of a time concerning the church age and beyond. And so the disciples perhaps are feeling a little bit perplexed, and so Jesus gives them another parable dealing with a mustard seed. And in this parable, uh, it seems that Jesus is wanting to encourage his disciples while waiting for that final harvest. Um, it would seem that maybe the disciples, like those slaves that were laboring for their master, wanted to maybe call down uh, fire from heaven and consume the unbelievers that were there around them, uh, wanting to see God's justice done more quickly, perhaps. We've seen that in their lives from time to time. And so Jesus, through these next two parables, are very small parables, show how really small things can make a really significant impact. And so they just need to, to hunker down and do what Christ has called them to do. He told them in chapter 4, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. He said, sowers go out and sow. And so he's going to say, you, you men just be faithful to doing what you've been called to do. Small things can have a significant impact. And he first shows them this through the parable of the mustard seed. Look at verses 31 through 32. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this mustard seed insert, is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. This is the first of Jesus' parables that go to show how uh, really small things, small things like mustard seeds, small things can grow into something of significance like a mustard seed having far-reaching impact for good. 
And here Jesus, we see, is making a comparison. The kingdom of heaven is like, it's likened unto a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a mustard seed. And so Jesus, in making this comparison, seems to, again, be wanting to encourage his disciples of how their labors would not be in vain. That um, while they're not, they're not the ones responsible for the, the saving of souls, they're simply responsible for the sowing of seed and that their labors thus would not be in vain. At this point in time in their ministry, as I've made mention, they're probably looking around and thinking, Jesus, you and we, we've been out there scattering this seed broadly to as many people as we can, and nobody's responding. They keep showing up for the free health care, but beyond that, they don't seem to be interested in believing in this message that you're the Messiah that's come from heaven. Could that be a little discouraged when you keep sowing and sowing? Have you ever been there with your neighbors or your family or people you love deeply and you want to see them come to faith? It can be discouraging. And I, I would assume that these disciples were finding themselves in a very similar place, and so Jesus, I think, is using this parable, comparing the kingdom of heaven to the mustard seed and letting them know that in a similar way, in a similar way, their labors that they are beginning here would not be in vain. Jesus was teaching them that while they, as a band of brothers, are very, very small in number indeed. It said there was 12 of them in chapter 10. One day, God, I think I just thought, there it is. Did I lose my mic for a second? Boy, it felt like it to me. That one day, God, the repentance-granting God, the God full of mercy and compassion, would over time, like the mustard seed, would one day grow Jesus' disciples into a large body of believers who would love and follow Christ just like they did and would be a place of great blessing for many in this earth. Jesus is letting them know that the kingdom of heaven, though having a very small beginning, would ultimately, when fully grown, provide shelter, protection, and would eventually benefit the entire world. We saw that first in Genesis chapter 12, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see in Daniel 2.35, but the stone that struck the statue became a mountain and filled the whole earth. And that stone that became a mountain later in Daniel is a kingdom of God that will endure forever and ever and ever. Amen. The coming kingdom of Christ. Start small, it takes over the entire world. And then Jesus gets to another parable, parable of leaven in 33 through 35. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. Verse 35, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. And that's what Jesus is here doing at this time in his ministry after he made that significant shift from teaching like sermons on the mount to now teaching in parables. And I will utter things. Jesus is uttering things hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, leaven, like we sometimes think of yeast, um, when added to dough, it's what causes that dough to rise. It's what gives that bread its, its shape and its, its size and a lot of good flavor as well. You might say um, that it's, it's an additive, but it has a significant influence on that which it's added to. Um, in this case, 
here in 33. This woman took and hid three pecks, hid the leaven, and it was like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks until it happened. And so you see the influence that the leaven has. It's, it, it can be completely unseen at one point in time, and it's unknowable or unperceivable. We perhaps know it's there because we put it there, but eventually it becomes known completely because it takes over that which once consumed it. And so again, looking at these parables as a way of bringing encouragement to the disciples who are going to be laboring hard. 2,000 years, we are still laboring hard. He's the fire within our veins. We're still laboring for the building of God's kingdom here on earth, and we're sowers who go out and we sow, and we desperately want to see people reached and lost, people saved, and so we continue to do this work. But one day, this entire world, after that second advent, we're going to get there next week because he, he talks about this in the, in the, in the uh, explanation of the parable of the terrors. But one day this entire world is going to be taken over and it's going to be the kingdom of our Christ and of his God. The entirety of it. And we have to have eyes of faith to see that now. Imagine the kind of eyes of faith they had to have to see and understand that then. But that's the power of God, right? The new birth. I once was blind, and now I see. And we see this when we read the Word of God, and we cling to His promises, and it becomes clearer and clearer with each passing day that these things are true. The kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven. It starts small, and like leaven, it's going to have an influence that will ultimately take over this entire world. It will not fail to grow. It will prosper. God will bring his kingdom to fruition regardless of what the naysayers may say and regardless of what the natural eye may think when it sees what it sees when it looks at the world and the culture in which we are living. When you just take a look at America today, does it look like the church of Jesus Christ is just taking over America like a mighty mountain? Or are you seeing something different? Does it feel a little bit bad? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. We sing these songs, right? That's not what's telling the story. God's word tells the story. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that's hidden in a, a, a three measures of dough. It will take over and it will grow. It's like a mustard seed, the smallest of the plants in the garden. But when it's full grown, it's the largest and many will find shelter in it. Seems clearly to me that Jesus is wanting to encourage disciples like them and like us who are laboring in that time between the advent who may get discouraged and thinking that is this really going to come to pass? It seems like the complete opposite may be happening. Be encouraged. The kingdom of heaven will grow. MacArthur in his commentary said, Christianity will win. Evil will be destroyed. And Jesus will reign. Christ himself is building his church, and the very gates of Hades, death itself, shall not overpower it. Which is exactly what we're going to see next week when we get into the explanation, the half of which I was wanting to do today. So what I want to do instead is just briefly read this half to you to, get, to wet in your whistle just briefly, and then we're going to dive into this next week. Notice this in verse 
36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, and again, where was he at with the crowds? He had previously left the house and gone out into, onto the side of the, the, of the, of the, uh, the sea and got onto a boat and was teaching. This is my little boat figure right here. It's not very good, never mind. And he was teaching them. And his disciples came to him and said, so now they're back in his house. His disciples are back in the house with him. They said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said to them, and I'm just going to read it. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. You notice a distinction already from the previous? Who are the sowers in the, in the, in the first parable? We're the sowers and we go out to sow. In this parable, who's doing the sowing? The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus is the Son of Man. And the field is the world. See, this is kind of a, like I said, it's, it's a it's the meta-narrative picture that we're getting here. Uh, these parables concerning the church age and beyond. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these, notice this, and, and notice right here, who's doing the sowing? The one who sows the good seed is Jesus, the Son of Man. And as for the good seed that the Son of Man sows, these, the good seed, are the sons of the kingdom. That's you and me. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. So while it's a familiar agricultural language that he's using, the analogies are completely different. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And so here we have it all kind of cramped in together. I wanted to show you at least one more passage before we get out of here today. Notice how well this connects with Genesis 3. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Who's the um, sower? The son of man. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Jesus is her seed. The seed of the woman found its fulfillment in Jesus. The one who sows the good seed is Jesus, the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. I will put enmity. This, this section 14 and 15 is God's curse on the serpent. I will put enmity between your seed. The serpent has seed. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Now, hopefully this is just enough to wet your whistle and to get you interested in coming back next week because this gets really good. Okay? I mean, Jesus here is pulling in some in-the-beginning 
kind of ideas in bringing encouragement to the church who's going to be doing sowing as sowers the previous parable. In this parable, Jesus is the sower. He's the one that's sowing. We'll get to that next week. This, this is truly a beautiful passage of the sovereignty of God in the granting of mercy and grace in planting people exactly where they are in their time of habitation on this planet right now. You're going to see next week that where you are at right now, uh, geographically, isn't by just some fluke or chance, but by God's very design. Those are some pretty deep things to think about, so come back next week.